See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, fix that hope deep in our hearts, we pray. Help us not to just leave here more knowledgeable about your word, but with a greater anticipation of the work that you promised to do, not just in this life, but in the life to come. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Many of us have spare rooms or closets, or if you live in a different part of the country, basements or attics that are filled with half-completed projects. Things you got started on, things you thought were going to be the next great time that you would spend in life, and after a little while of tinkering, you, you just put it away. Uh, a guitar you never learned how to play, a set of tools that you never used. Uh, Maybe there's a foreign language DVD that you thought you were going to use to learn to speak Italian. I mean, all you really need to do is just meet up with Brett for lunch periodically. (laughs) Do you ever think or maybe do you worry that maybe God has one of those closets? And maybe you're the one in it? Well, there's something I really don't have the time or interest in finishing. That's just going to be way too much for me to try to bring that person to completion. Well, here in 1 John, the elderly apostle, the one who leaned up against Jesus' chest on the night of the Last Supper, the one who, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, took care of Mary, his mother, Toward the end of his life and some of the last things that he ever tells the church, he assures the people of God that God will finish what he started. He says, they will see God, verse 2, and when they see God, they will be like God. So this morning, I just want to ask two simple questions. What exactly, if you're a Christian, what exactly are you waiting for? And then secondly, how do we live in anticipation of it? What are we waiting for, and how do we live in anticipation of it? Well, we're waiting here for the resurrection from the dead. We're waiting for what our theologians call glorification. Uh, We see this doctrine unpacked in lots of different places in Scripture. One of the most important is actually Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When Paul talks about the resurrection from the dead, he ties it to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And the idea there is he's the first row of the harvest. And that harvest isn't going to be complete until you and I are also raised. 
Well, what Paul talks about in general terms as the resurrection of the dead, here in 1 John, John talks about it as seeing God, beholding God's face, what theologians call the beatific vision. Being brought face to face with God, not just so that we're lost in the gaze, but because that look actually changes us. That sounds a little strange until you think about our own lives. And if you have children, or if you know this just generally about kids, when our kids are infants and a mom or a dad is staring into their eyes, Scientists tell us that their brain begins to fire in ways that it doesn't fire if a parent's gaze is averted elsewhere, like on this thing. But when we're looking at our children, their brain actually develops. They're growing and developing in ways that are only made possible because of the gaze of their parents. Well, in a similar way, when we see Jesus, we will also be changed. We will be made like him. The Apostle Peter picks up this language in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, we're going to become partakers of the divine nature. Now, if you've ever read that passage, you've probably scratched your head a little bit. How do I, a creature, become a partaker of the divine nature? Well, Peter doesn't mean that we're all going to become little g-gods. We're not going to be wandering around heaven or repopulating our own solar systems. We're not going to share in the divine essence that makes God God. Instead, we're going to share in His glory. If you think about the sun and its beams, well, the beam is not the sun. The beam is the glory of the sun. In the same way, we are going to share in the glory of God. We are going to become as much like God as a creature can, sharing his holiness, sharing his likeness. Well, this isn't just something that an old man on his deathbed is thinking up and dreaming up and trying to console himself with. No, this stretches all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told that we were made in the image of God. We were made to share in the likeness of God. But because of sin, that that likeness was shattered. And so now, instead of seeing that likeness when we look into a mirror, it's like looking into a shattered mirror where the reflection goes all over the place. Sin has made us very much unlike God. Well, what does God do about that? Well, what's fascinating is to trace the theme of the image of God through the New Testament, to see how Jesus is at work refixing in us the image of God. Think about it this way. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, We read about who Jesus is. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And what has this one who is God come to do? Well, he's come to die for our sins. He's come to 
live a life of perfect obedience, to give to us his perfect record. And so Paul in Romans chapter 8 tells us, you have been predestined to be conformed to his likeness. The work that God is doing in you isn't this kind of, you know, hypothetical. This impersonal work of saying, well, I'm going to make sure that one is saved, but I don't really care about that one. No, he is at work in you to make you more and more like Jesus. In fact, Paul will go on in Hebrews chapter 4 to say, when we're born again, we're actually given a new nature, a new self that is created in true righteousness and holiness. This new self, it's not up to us. It's not up to us to improve on it. It's not up to us to to make it worthy in God's sight. That's the new self that actually reflects who God is, that is the renewed image of God. This is why, again, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that God is at work in us, transforming us on a day-to-day basis into the likeness of Christ. And ultimately... When Christ, who is your life, appears, Paul says in Colossians 3, you will appear with him in glory. The image of God is something that is held out to us as our hope. That we will one day be like Jesus. Now all of this, All of these promises that I've just read, everything that the Bible explains here is the fruit of justification. It's the consequence of God's act, his verdict, not just of not guilty as we talked about last week, but his verdict that you are innocent. In justification, we've already heard the verdict of the last judgment, But right now, if we were to be honest, we'd have to all acknowledge that our actual condition, our day-to-day life, well, it doesn't reflect that verdict. We get justification through believing what we have heard. We receive our glorification by seeing the one we have heard. He's the one who changes us. And in that face-to-face encounter, we will be fully and finally changed. We will share in God's glory. Well, Eric, that sounds amazing, but man, there are days where I wonder, is that really going to be true of me? Can I really have that hope? Well, John says that you can. Verse 1. You can have that hope because already, right now, we have been called the children of God. Now, I know it's popular probably among a certain subset of your friends or family members to kind of look out over the world and just like, you know, with with a big sigh say, oh, we're all just the children of God, aren't we? But of course we're not. In fact, we are all the children of wrath by nature. But John says here that we are called God's children. 
We are made God's children by an act of radical love. We have been adopted into God's family. And that adoption is one of the benefits of our union with Christ. It's a union that is made ours by the justifying verdict of God. And that union with Christ, it secures a relationship with God that binds us as closely to Him as a father to a son. This is why Jesus can say in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, He's not ashamed to call you and me his brothers. It's why Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 to pray to God as our Father. It's also why Paul says in Romans 8 that we have the spirit of sonship in our hearts calling out Abba, Father, to God. How do we know that one day we will be made perfectly and finally like Jesus. Because we're sons. Because we're children of God. He's not going to leave you behind. He's not going to ignore you. He's going to raise you on the last day, and he's going to make you like his only begotten son. Because we are children of God right now, our future is certain. Now, there's lots of things that we don't know about what heaven's going to be like. There's lots of things that we don't know about what the new creation is going to look like. How old are we going to be? Thomas Aquinas, the, the great medieval Catholic theologian, he thought that we would all be 33 years of age. <laughs> what are we going to look like? Will, will my ears still stick out a little bit? Or will they you know, look different? How will we know our loved ones, maybe that we never knew, but who died before we were born? How much will we remember of this life? What will we even do while we're there? There's a lot of questions, but here's the assurance. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him. We shall see him as he is. You remember how the book of Revelation talks about who Jesus is and how he looks? Like a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, still bearing in his body the marks of his death. We shall see him as he is. Why is John telling us this? Why is he telling the church this? Because he wants us to live in anticipation of that great day. Now, I think it's hard for us to do that. It's hard for us to anticipate something that we really don't have a lot of information about in the Bible. And so partly to live in anticipation of that day, we have to use things here on earth to train our hearts and our senses to look forward to what is heavenly. Think about this. The next time that you see a beautiful Texas sunset, or when you hear Handel's Messiah, when you smell Fresh baked bread. When you taste a Napa Cabernet. 
When you touch the soft skin of your first grandchild, when you experience something wonderful here on earth, train yourself to say, but how much better will it be in heaven? The opposite is also true. Every inconvenience, every disappointment, every pain and frustration, every sadness and longing, when you experience something hard and miserable here, train yourself to say, but it won't be this way in heaven. The promise of verse 3 is that when we do this, when we have this hope, we're made holy. We are purified. Maybe some of you have heard this phrase, he's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. I don't know anybody like that today. Most of us are too earthly-minded to be ready for heaven. We don't really long for it. We're not really that interested in it. And as a result, we find ourselves unprepared for it. John says, if you think about these things, if you have your hope that this life, as, as, as good as it may be, or even as bad as it may be, if you remember that it's just a shadow of the things to come, then you actually are getting ready. You're preparing yourself for the life to come. I mean, it's almost as like John is saying, you think this is life? I has not seen nor has ear heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Folks, when we are changed by the gaze of Jesus, we will have finally and forever been brought to the intention that God first laid out in Genesis chapter 1. To be fully human. No longer weighed down by sin. No longer weighed down by the effects of the fall. But in perfect communion and fellowship with God. But it's even more than that. When we are glorified, we're bringing everything with us. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8 verse 22. He says that creation groans, waiting for the redemption. What is he waiting for the redemption of? Of our bodies. Creation groans, not waiting for your soul to shed this mortal coil and find its way to some cream cheese commercial. Creation groans for the redemption of our bodies. That's what Paul is describing here. Folks, that means that our transformation, the glory that will be given to us, somehow, some way, it wraps in the entire created order. 
We are ground zero for an experience that will envelop everything around us. That's the hope that makes you holy. That's the hope that purifies you today. We've talked about justification, that innocent verdict that is pronounced over you. We've talked about glorification, what we're anticipating on the last day. Well, this ongoing process of hoping for what God has promised, that purifying hope, that's sanctification. That's the long, slow process by which you are made more and more into the image of Christ, putting sin to death and growing in holiness. Well, that process will be finally complete when you see Jesus, when he makes you like him. Folks, the more that we give our hearts and minds to this reality right now, the quicker we'll repent when we do find ourselves caught up in sin. The faster we'll turn to Jesus with hope and confidence that he forgives us. The greater our delight will be in our Savior. Let's finish with this. Before the great British Prime Minister Winston Churchill died, he gave instructions for his funeral and some of the final moments of his service would be played by two lone trumpeters positioned on one side and the other of the great rotunda of St. Paul's Cathedral in central London. The one at the very end of the service would play Last Post. That's the British version of Taps. What soldiers would often play at funerals and as soon as the mournful notes of that trumpeter faded, another trumpeter immediately started playing Reveille. It's time to get up. A new day has started. Rise and shine. Friends, we're waiting for the second trumpet. We're waiting for that moment that we will look on our Savior's face and we will be changed and all creation will be changed. It'll be a new day that dawns, a day that will never end. Days that are filled with lasting joys or solid joys and lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. Let's pray. Father, may we be filled with heavenly hope not just so that we are ready for that day, but so that we can love the creation that you love, that one day will also be changed to point men and women, boys and girls, to this same hope that this life is not all that there is, that instead a new life is getting ready to dawn. Father, fix in us that hope and confidence that you will be faithful to complete what you have started in each of us. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.